Bismillah. Bismillah. Let's get started, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Jazakum khair. One brother got the ajr, mashallah. Assalamu alaikum. Barakallah feekum. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from everybody here in Allah's house. We're going to get started, inshallah, with our, with our mashayikh in just a minute. Um, I wanted to share a couple of reminders and announcements. So the first reminder is that we have refreshments, alhamdulillah, on both sides. Uh, feel free to take part in uh, enjoying the hospitality of the masjid. Make dua for the volunteers who have put together all of these refreshments. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them. The second reminder is that this is one room. So whatever you say in this corner, they can hear in that corner. So let's all try and have one conversation with our mashayikh, inshallah, and try and be respectful of the conversation here. If you need to talk, please go to either the outside door, outside those doors there or outside those doors there so that you don't disturb anyone else, inshallah. Tonight we're joined with our, our beloved mashayikh, Sheikh Muhammad Saadi and Sheikh Ismail Hamdi, who are going to talk to us about the obstacles in the pursuit of knowledge. A couple of uh, announcements about some upcoming events. Inshallah, this weekend here at ICPC Clifton, uh, there will be a class, an intensive with Sheikh Usama and Sheikh Yasser. Uh, it's known as Adab, studying Adab behavior, character. Uh, you should have seen the flyers. There's a flyer on the brother's side towards the entrance, and there's a flyer next to the first window on the sister's side. Uh, it's a full day, two day intensive, nine to five both days. Uh, if you would like to register, uh, use the QR code. Uh, if you're a student, there's a student rate. Uh, and if you can't afford it, please reach out to us at info at propheticliving.org. And we'll be sure to uh, make sure that cost is not a preventative for the class, inshallah. I'm sorry? Uh, the, the second announcement is that, inshallah, on Monday at ICPC Patterson, there will be a town hall meeting to discuss all of the important updates as we prepare for the blessed month of Ramadan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to witness the month of Ramadan. Ameen. So please join us at 6 o'clock on Monday, bi-idhnillah, at ICPC Patterson. The final announcement is that on uh, Sunday, March 3rd, at 2.30 o'clock here at ICPC Clifton, uh, there will be a community hub gathering about welcoming Ramadan. Uh, activities, crafts, and games for children of all ages. Parents' supervision is required. With that, I leave you in the very capable hands of our Mashaikh, inshallah. Jazakallah khair, Brother Mundo, for the beautiful update. A'udhu billahi min shaitan al-rajim, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wa salatu wa salamu ala ashraf al-Mursaleen, Sayyidina Muhammad, kidnapped him. A'udhu billahi min shaitan al-rajim, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We start off by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and sending our peace and blessings upon our master Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala every single day for another day of Iman and Islam. We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala every day for the bounty and the greatest gift in the world, which is the gift of Hidayah. The gift of guidance, being in the masjid. We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala every single day for the gift of wudu and salah. We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala every single day for the gift of the masjid and pious companionship. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us with steadfastness and sincerity. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us acceptance in all our actions. 
We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us hearts that are not dead and heedless of Him. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us hearts that are soft and close to Him. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us beneficial knowledge. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us beneficial knowledge. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us a knowledge that brings us closer to Him and a knowledge that we act upon. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us a knowledge that will be a proof for us and not against us on the day of judgment. A beneficial knowledge is a knowledge that you act upon. We ask Allah to keep us sincere and humble in all our actions. We ask Allah to bless this masjid and all masjids in the world. We ask Allah to bless our families with guidance and hidayah. We ask Allah to bless us and our children and our families with the love of Quran and salah. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the Quran our most intimate companion in this world and the next. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the Quran our most intimate friend in this world and in our grave and in the next world. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to lighten our vision with the light of the Quran and Iman. And to lighten our hearing with the light of Quran and Iman. And to lighten our hearts with the comprehension of Quran and Iman. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be with our brothers and sisters in Gaza. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to aid them over their oppressors. We ask Allah to grant all those that passed away in Gaza the status of martyrdom. We ask Allah to grant them the companionship of the Prophet Sallallahu and his family. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant them the companionship of the Prophet Sallallahu and his blessed companions. We ask Allah to grant them victory and to grant us a salah and a liberated Majlis al-Aqsa. We ask Allah to make us of the generation of those who see the liberated Majlis al-Aqsa. We ask Allah that the next salah we pray in Majlis al-Aqsa will be in a liberated Majlis al-Aqsa. With that being said, we'd like to start off our event. And as Muslims, like we said, we are thankful to Allah for this bounty of guidance. And this, this guidance is something beautiful. It's what brings you to the Majlis on a Friday night. Because right now, people are doing other things on a Friday night. But alhamdulillah, we're gathered in the masjid. And this masjid is the greatest place to gather. Because you'll find the best of people in the masjid. You'll find the best of people in the masjid. Categorize people. The best of people you find in the masjid. And I would have never thought in my life, ever, that I would be sitting and speaking in front of you guys. And the community that I was raised in, I was raised here in ICPC. Not in ICPC Clifton, it wasn't something back then. But now, alhamdulillah, it's something now. I was raised in ICPC Paris, and that was the masjid that I was really raised in. So I thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this blessing of getting to know my dear friend and my brother, Sheikh Muhammad Saadi. His name is Muhammad Rahman, but he's referred to as Muhammad Saadi because the Bengalis know him for his nickname, which is Saadi. And, and uh, for the Bengalis, every single person is Muhammad, so, so he has to be Muhammad Saadi. So I met Brother Muhammad in ICPC Paris years ago, maybe about a long time ago. We were both very young. But I did not want to jump into anything yet. We wanted to go in order, and Sheikh Muhammad wanted to start off by speaking a little, so I would love to greet him the mic and let him start it off, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrafil anbiya wa sayyidin muslimin nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahabi ajma'in. So this is, uh, this is Friday Forum. This is the first time I'm here for Friday Forum. I, I, I'm here for khutub sometimes, but this is like a new platform, so... Uh, I know Sheikh Ismail was here a couple weeks ago. Uh, so he invited me, he asked me to come today uh, so we could kind of speak a little bit about a topic that brings both of us together. Um, in this life and inshallah in the hereafter, um, and it's the topic of knowledge, the topic of seeking knowledge. Um, and we'll get into why, you know, what happened and how we're kind of tied with this bond. Um, but inshallah, we wanted to... Uh, start off the topic with some icebreakers. Um, I asked if there was ever icebreakers in a Friday forum. They said they were, they, it was never done. 
So we'll just start with a few questions. Sheikh Ismail, being the new Imam, uh, I'll ask him the questions, inshallah, so that we can kind of get some uh, intimate knowledge about him inshallah. in terms of certain things. So, uh, so the first question I have to ask is: since you were in, uh, since you were in, since I was in where? Since you were in Egypt, yeah. Al-Ahli or Zamalek? Neither, brother. <laughs> Neither Ahli or Zamalek. We're New York Yankee fans. Mashallah. New York Giants. Brooklyn Nets, the New Jersey Nets, Richard Jefferson, Jason so Kidd. So basketball. basketball. Basketball, football, and baseball. Mashallah. The Yankees. Uh, so the second question yeah. I wanted to ask is, inshallah, uh, since we're talking about knowledge specifically, uh, if you were stuck on an island mm. and you can only bring one book, it can't be the Quran, okay. and it can't be <laughs> any of the sunnahs, uh, the, the book of sunnah. Okay. What book would you take with you and why? I'll take with me, uh, it's a method called Mukhtasar Al-Quduri. It's called the uh, Al-Quduri. It was written by a scholar called Imam Al-Quduri. He was a Baghdadi scholar of the Hanafi Madhab. And I will take that book with me because it's also known as the Blessed Mukhtasar Al-Mukhtasar Al-Mubarak. Because the person that wrote it was very, very sincere. He wrote it many years ago. He was a he was one of the first scholars of the Hanafi Madhab in Baghdad. And he wrote this this book in fiqh and fiqh Hanafi and it lasted up until today and I uh, had the blessing of be I began to memorize this book in Egypt like I began to memorize many books but I'm very weak because I'm a human being so I wasn't able to finish it but it's a book that I have an intimate bond with and I love dearly because I chose the Hanafi madhab when I was in Egypt to study that madhab in Al-Azhar so I got very close and intimate with this book called Muqtasar Al-Quduri written by Imam Abu Al-Hasan Al-Quduri he's from Baghdad and my father is originally from Baghdad as well so uh, I would take that book with me. Okay, mashallah, mashallah. Uh, I guess the, sec the third question would be, if there was any scholar or Islamic personality that you could meet outside of the three generations, so the Prophet Sallallahu excluding the Prophet Sallallahu the Sahaba, the Tabi'in and the Tabi'i Tabi'i, which includes Abu Hanifa, obviously, uh, Allah. So I was gonna say who, Abu Hanifa. Who, who would you want to meet and why? There's a lot of good people, so uh, maybe Imam Bukhari. He's still in the. Uh, in he's still in the early. Yeah, he's not sure it's three though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Khalas, not him. Hmm. Uh. How about this? How about this? That's my next question. Right. I googled a, a sheikh one time. I heard his name. His name was Sheikh. Hamdi al-Awami. Oh. And uh, you have a story about the Sheikh. Yeah. He's a, a Baghdadi Sheikh. Yeah. And he's from the Ottoman Empire, Sorry. period of the Ottoman Empire, right? Uh, what, what, what connects you to the Sheikh? And, yeah. and is there any inspiration that you've drawn from him? Sheikh and how did you come across him? No, mashallah. Sheikh Muhammad came with a good question. He, he asked me about the Sheikh. His name is Al-Allama Hamdi al-Awami. My name is Ismail Hamdi al-Awami. Hamdi al-Azim is my great-grandfather. So my father's grandfather is this guy. His name is the great scholar Al-Allama Hamdi al-Azimi. He's from Al-Azimiyah in Baghdad. Al-Azimiyah is a district in Baghdad named after Imam Al-Azim. Imam Al-Azim is the nickname of Imam Abu Hanifa Nu'man uh, and Nu'man ibn Thabit ibn Zuta ibn Marzaban. Right? So Imam Abu Hanifa is buried in a place called Baghdad in a district called Al-Azimiyah. Adami in English is like the great district because he was known as the great Imam, Al Imam Al Adam, the greatest Imam. My great grandfather was a scholar of the Hanafi Madhab. 
growing up in America, I never knew what Hanafi was or Shafi'i was or Hanbali was or Maliki was. I knew Islam in the masjid, in Sheikh Atanani. That's, that's as far as it went. I didn't know what a madhab was. But uh, going to Egypt and embarking on a journey of knowledge and learning Arabic and entering Al-Azhar, I realized that when you join Al-Azhar, you have to pick a madhab. So I got stumped because I was like, what's a madhab? But they were all Muslims. So uh, the concept was new to me. So I said, Khalas, ICPC, my mom is a Palestinian. I was raised with my grandma. She's Palestinian. I'll be Shafi'i. But then I noticed something in Al-Azhar and all the real legit students were all Maliki. So I had a lot of good friends when I first started studying in Al-Azhar. They were all Maliki from Senegal and Burkina Faso and Benin and Niger and Nigeria and Mali and Senegal. They were very studious and they were very poor. But they loved knowledge. And they were very serious about their studies and they were always reading and revising and memorizing all these different books. So I was hanging out with them. So they made me want to pick the Maliki Madhab. And then uh, I used to have a shallow idea of fiqh, but then when I got to meet people and meet teachers and meet sheikhs, I realized that it's much deeper than I thought. So I called my father one day, uh, and I said, uh, I have to pick a Madhab for Al-Azhar. And he's listening to me. And I go to him, uh, I'm going to either pick the Hanafi Madhab or the Maliki Madhab. Sorry, the, Han the Shafi'i Madhab or the Maliki Madhab. And my dad said, why are you going to return to Dakar? Dakar is the capital of Senegal. I said, no, I'm going to go back to America after I finish my studies. He goes, Khalas, what do you want to do with the Maliki Madhab? I said, no, all my friends are Maliki. And uh, I'll benefit a lot if I study the Maliki Madhab. He said, no, I think it's best you pick the Hanafi Madhab. I go, why? He said, first of all, your great-grandfather was Hanafi. And my dad was bigging him up. So I thought my dad was being exaggerative in his praise for his grandfather. And he's like, he was a great Hanafi scholar. And he was summoned up by the last uh, Khalifa of the Ottoman Empire, Sultan Abdul Hamid al-Thani. He called him up to Istanbul to teach there and uh, be a, a judge there. And so I was hearing my dad out about that. And then he also said, you're going to go back to America. And if you look at the madhabs in America, it's predominantly Shafi'i and Hanafi. And he said, the Hanafis are the only true people that actually follow their madhab. I was like, yeah, you're right. So uh, I looked into my great-grandfather that day. I looked him up on Google, and there he had a Wikipedia page, and I read about him. And then uh, I also saw that some great scholars of history wrote his biography in the great scholars of Islam. So he was famous. So I went and I picked the Hanafi madhab due to that, due to my great-grandfather. So my origin is Hanafi, because he was a great scholar in Baghdad that was summoned up by the last Khalifa of the Ottoman Empire to teach in Istanbul, where he married his second wife, a Turkish wife. And uh, he taught and he uh, was a great judge in Istanbul for years until he went back to Baghdad and he was buried in Baghdad in the district of Al-Azamiyya and he gave up all his library, his books for the sake of Allah. He gave his books up as a waqf. He gave up his books, his library uh, for the sake of Allah for free. So now he's buried in his library. So you go to the library of Al-Allama Hamd Al-Azami in the district of Al-Azamiyya in, uh, in Baghdad and uh, his grave is there. And then you enter the library, and anybody could use the library. It's his personal books. So I picked the Hanafi Madhab, and I never looked back, alhamdulillah. It was great. It was the greatest decision I ever made in my life. It's a beautiful Madhab. Nice question. So inshallah, we'll get into the topic. Uh, so uh, the obviously, we wanted to speak about the obstacles of seeking knowledge specifically, mm -hmm. but um, we have two Madhabs here, by the way. Sheikh Ismail, his idea is that you just, you just speak. From the heart. From the heart, yeah. mashallah. My madhab is that you over-prepare. So I'm the one who came up with all of the topics. Inshallah, hopefully it will be, there will be a flow to it. But the main thing is uh, we wanted to start off by kind of speaking about, you know, what pushed us into seeking knowledge and where did it start? Yeah. MashaAllah. So uh, 
I never ever in my entire life grew up wanting to be an imam of a mosque or wanting to go study Islam. That was never something on my agenda ever. I was a normal individual and I was born and raised here uh, in northern New Jersey. And I had similar, uh, uh, I'd say I, I was into similar things as a, the youth growing up here, you know, play basketball until 2 a.m. in the morning and uh, have fun outside. Uh, so I was a normal individual. I went to public school. And uh, certain events in my life, certain events in my life brought me to an individual in the Masjid in ICPC Patterson. Before I get there, we used to attend youth events in the mosque. ICPC Patterson had hired a full-time youth director. His name was Dr. Imad Hamza. He wasn't a doctor back then, but now he's a doctor because he's a professor. This individual was the full-time youth director of ICPC Patterson. So they invested in a youth director. So he had youth activities. Basketball, Philly cheesesteaks, double cheeseburger, and then a small talk. Then they implemented the summer camp. So as a youth growing up, I didn't have any interest in going to the mosque or praying. That was the last thing on my mind. But basketball was fun, and we love cheesesteaks and burgers. So that was also something that really pushed us to go to the mosque. Also, I grew up with my cousin Hassan. He was recently here with his wife. He was like my brother growing up. He was my cousin. He lived on Valley Road up the street from here. And his mother was constantly taking me and him to the mosque on Friday nights. There was like a program or something. So his mother, Sister Arzinia, may Allah bless her and grant her long life in Siha and Afia, is like my second mother as well. I love her dearly. She used to bring me and my cousin Hassan to the mosque. We used to play basketball at ICPC Patterson. Salah time would come in. We'd run to the store, come back after Salah finishes, continue to play basketball. What I mean was I was a normal kid growing up here. You know, I wasn't religious or practicing. I didn't want to be a scholar or a sheikh or go study in Egypt. I never knew what Egypt was. Like, I was normal. I was from Patterson and from, from Clifton and from Wayne, this, these areas, you know. And then uh, certain events happen in your life, you know. You go on with life and you hang out with the wrong people. You get into the wrong crowds. You go down the wrong way. Uh, but the masjid is still there in the back of your head because of these youth events. We used to hear talks at these youth events. So those talks always stuck in my head. Also, we went to these youth camps. And those youth camps were very, very, very beneficial because in the youth camps, they would give us a small talk after every salah. So those memories were always constantly in the back of my head, hitting me in the back of my head, like always, you know, no matter what, no matter where I went in my life. A couple years went by, I was a senior in high school. I wasn't really attached to the measure. Something happened in my life, not to get into detail, something happened in my life that drew me back to want to come back to the measure. Like I said, I met, I met Hamda, the person who was in charge of the youth uh, committee in ICPC through the youth events. And I had a deep love for him because he was very sincere. His talks penetrated my heart all the time, even if I agreed or disagreed, even if he yelled at me because I was a troublemaker. Whatever it was, I still loved him to death. Even when he was yelling at me and aggressive with me, I was like, he's right, I'm wrong. You know, I had a deep love for this guy. He was sincere. His talks used to hit, talking about being good to your parents, talking about salah, talking about not looking at haram, talking about not cursing. Whatever he talked about, it was always 10 out of 10. Why? Because he was sincere. Because he was sincere. Sincerity is the answer to everything in the world. Dr. Ahmad isn't world famous right now. He's not world famous, but he's famous by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's all that matters in the world. The, you don't have to be famous and al-khalq. You know, Brad Pitt is famous by everyone. We all know his name and Angelina Jolie and all these people, but they're not famous and Allah. We want to be famous with Allah. The Muslim wants to be sincere. Inna Allah ta'ala al-abd al-taqi al-ghani al-khafi. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he loves three categories of people, wallahi. He loves the abd, the slave that has taqwa. He's cognizant of Allah. Allah is on his mind. Allah is in his heart. And he loves the slave that is rich. He's self-sufficient. 
and he has contentment in his heart and ridha. And he loves the slave that is khafi. He's a secret slave of Allah, the sincere individual. He comes to Salat al-Fajr every single day. You don't know his name because he comes to Fajr 20 minutes before Fajr. He reads Quran, he prays Fajr, and he leaves. He's a secret slave of Allah. He's sincere. He comes to the masjid for the sake of Allah. That same brother you see at Fajr, you go to another random masjid and you see him there from Maghrib. Secret slave of Allah. He goes to the masjid for the sake of Allah. I could say uh, confidently, Dr. Ahmad is very sincere. He affected me dearly. He affected my four cousins. We all grew up together, me and my four cousins. All of us started practicing because of Dr. Ahmad. All of us, all four of us at different times. He affected my generation, the generation before me, and the two generations after me, four generations, due to his immense sincerity. And I felt his sincerity dearly. I felt like he was my older brother always. So uh, something happened. I was a senior in high school. It was one month before I graduated. I was turning 18 in two months. It was in April. And it was a gloomy, depressing day in New Jersey, always depressing and gloomy and cold. And uh, I was going home from high school that day, and something hurt my heart. Like, my heart started, like, hurting a lot. So I turned on the music radio, Hot 97. It bothered me. I turned it off. I turned on Power 105.1. It bothered me. I turned it off. All the music wasn't working. Usually the music, it takes away. Like, because you have a void in your heart. You want to fill the void of your heart. So you add more void to your heart. It, like, it masks the void. It doesn't cover it. It doesn't fill it. Because only the remembrance of Allah is what fills the void of the heart. Only salah and having a connection with Allah and loving Allah and being with Allah fills that emptiness that you have in the heart, that void. So I was driving home. I had a Toyota Corolla 1997. And uh, it was my first car. I loved it. I bought it from an old lady down the street. I only had 43,000 miles on it when I bought it. Wallahi, I don't know. She only went to the bank in the church once a week. She used a car once a week. Alhamdulillah, it was a steal. So uh, I was driving home that day. And uh, the music wasn't working. And then uh, something strange happened in that car ride. Wallahi, I'll never forget it. I just, uh, I remembered my father. My parents were separated at the time. So my dad's not living with me. But I remembered my dad. And my dad raised me religiously. My dad was a religious individual and an active individual. He used to give khutbah sometimes here and there. He was an active individual Islamically. And he was very uh, Sufi-esque. He used to have dhikr circles in our house on Sunday nights with his friends and I just remembered his friends that day I remembered my dad's friends in my head I don't know why I don't know why it was like I was driving and the music wasn't working so I was driving to nothing and I just thought about my dad and I, I thought about my dad's friends that I haven't seen in like what 12 years his friends that used to come to that dhikr gathering on Sunday nights they were always radiant they were always happy they were always, although I remember those guys that used to come to that gathering they were always happy they were always happy they come to make dhikr and they're happy they were always happy. They were always smiling. They were always respectful. They had good etiquette. And I remember my father taking me to the masjid when I was young, and I began to cry. Like, I cried a lot. And I don't want to get carried away with the story. It's a long story. But I went home. When, uh, when I got home, I went on my computer. I opened Facebook. Back then, there was no Instagram, no Snapchat, nothing. It was just Facebook. And Facebook was the other thing to fill the void. So I went on Facebook, and it was bothering me. I took my computer, and I threw it. And I just lied down on my bed, and I looked up at the ceiling, and I started to cry again. I was like, yo, what's going on? I was like, what is this? Why won't it leave? I don't know why. I called Dr. Ahmad. I don't know why. I called him. I called Dr. Ahmad. So I called Dr. Ahmad and he answered. He goes, Salaamu Alaikum Israel. Kifak, man, long time. I haven't seen him since the summer before, the summer camp before. So now it's April, May. I haven't seen him for a year. I go, Alhamdulillah, man. He goes, what's up? What's up? I go, nothing. Can, do you have time to talk? I would like to talk to you. He goes, yeah, Ahlan wa sahlan. I'm in the masjid. I'm in ICTC Patterson. He goes, Ahlan wa sahlan, Ahlan wa sahlan. I go, you're in the office? He goes, yeah. I was like, all right, I'm coming. So I went to leave, and my grandma goes, what's wrong, Ismail? What's wrong? I go, nothing. My stomach hurts. 
She where are you going? I said, I'm going to the masjid. She, she said, كل يوم تروح للمسجد, you come back at 2 a.m.? I said, Wallahi, I'm going to the masjid today. I said, Wallahi. She said, every day you say masjid, masjid, you come back at 2 a.m.? I said, no, no, I'm going to the masjid today. Wallahi, I'm going to the masjid today. I'm going to the masjid. <laughs> and then she said, all right, go. So I went to the masjid. I pulled up. Amu Fulali was walking out the masjid. He was the president at the time. He gave me a hug. He said, where you been? I go, I've been busy. I walk into the masjid. I put my shoes on the the rack, I put my shoes on the shoe rack, and I'll never forget this in my life, like, wallahi al-azim, I'll never forget this memory in my life, it's like in my head like that, I walked into ICPC Patterson, it was a gloomy, depressing day, I walked in, and it was like, like I got hit by something, it felt so good, and I put my shoes on the rack, and I felt so calm and tranquil, and then I put my foot on the carpet, I was like, yo, this carpet is comfortable, I was like, well, subhanAllah, the carpet's not comfortable. I'm walking in the masjid. It's mad quiet. It's so quiet. Wallahi, the masjid is the most blessed place on the face of the earth. It's all angels. The masjid is all angels. This was between Maghrib and Isha, right? I walked into the musalla, and Sheikh Qatanani was sitting down with like three, four guys teaching this book called the Madarij Salikin by Ibn al-Qayyim. Sheikh Qatanani has this one class that he's been teaching for years. He teaches it. It's like a, a little class every Thursday, yeah. It's like an OG class. <laughs> It's called Madarij al-Salikin. It's a book on etiquette, Islamic etiquette and tasawwuf. By Ibn al-Qayyim, it's a commentary on a book called Manazil al-Sa'irin by Imam al-Harawi. So Sheikh Qatanani was there with these three, four guys. And then I walked past him and I walked up the steps of the stage because there's a stage in ICP Patterson and Dr. Ahmad's office was on the left. I knocked his door and then I entered his office and he was chilling on his phone like that. I was like, Assalamu alaikum And then I went into his office and I spoke to him and I cried again. And he goes, you know what to do. We tell you every camp, this, that. Leave off your bad friends. Stop hanging out with the wrong people. Hang out with good people. Go to the masjid, this, that. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to quit everything today. He goes, no, no, don't quit everything. Relax. Take it easy. Take things one step at a time. I go, no. I'm going to quit everything today. Everything I'm quitting today. I'm going to delete my Facebook when I get home. He goes, no, no, keep it, keep it. Just relax. Take things one step at a time. I go, no. I want to delete everything. Anyway, at the end of this talk I had with him, I felt amazing because I let everything off my chest and he was there like an older brother. At the end of this talk, the, uh, the Iqama of Isha went off. The Iqama of Isha went off. And uh, he goes, Yalla, let's go pray Salat al-Isha. So I said, Isha, what? I don't pray Salat. I never prayed a Salat in my life. And he goes, no, 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 no. no. What are you talking about? You're in the masjid. The Iqama went off. You have to pray Salat al-Isha. I said, Ahmad, Jazakallah khair for your time, brother. I really appreciate it, man. But I don't want to be someone that prays. I don't want to be a sheikh. I told him, I just want good to happen to me in my life. All this stuff is happening is so bad. I'm so depressed. You know, karma, I'm an American kid. You know, you do good, good happens. You do bad, bad happens. I was like, I just want good to happen. He goes, yeah, that's fine. I understand. That's fine. Cool, cool, cool. But you have to pray Isha. This is the karma. You're in the masjid. I go, Ahmad, what do you not understand, bro? I don't pray. And he goes, uh, no, you pray today. I said to him, no, uh, forgive me, but I'm not going to pray. And I told him, I'm going to go to Jahannam anyway. Then he punched me really hard. And he hit me hard. And I was like, relax. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. Well, I didn't mean no disrespect. <laughs> I'm very sorry. He goes, you have to pray. You're in the masjid. You have to pray. I was like, all right, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, خلاص, I'll pray. So we're walking down the steps of the stage. And I told him, Ahmad, I don't know how to make wudu. I was trying to get out. And uh, he goes, خلاص, I'll come teach you how to make wudu. So he took me to the bathroom and he told me how to make wudu. And then after I made wudu, I go, Ahmad, I don't know the fatiha. I don't know this thing, this thing over here. I don't know it. And then he goes, oh, the tashahud. I go, yeah. He goes, no problem, no problem. Just follow the imam. Follow Sheikh Qatanani. I go, yeah, but what am I going to say? He goes, just say subhanAllah. Just say subhanAllah. I go, all right. So I prayed Salat al-Isha that day. It was amazing. I felt great. 
I felt very good. First Salah, I prayed with, with the first Salah that counted. It was amazing. It felt very good. And then there's a, it's a long story, but we want to talk about knowledge and stuff. But yeah. And then uh, I went home. I didn't intend to pray five times a day. It was never my intention ever to pray five times a day. Because praying five times a day in my head is a big inconvenience. You know, I'm going to pray five times a day. It's so long. And then I'm going to pray and be judgmental. Because yeah. people that pray, they're all judgmental. I don't like people of the measured. So I was really against the idea of praying five times a day. I really didn't want it to enter my life because it was going to ruin everything. But it did the opposite. Alhamdulillah. So, so from yeah. that, so from yeah. that, how did you, I mean, from not praying, yeah. from not knowing like Fatha and things like yeah. this, how did you go from this extreme yani, to now oh, going into question. seeking into knowledge? This is a good question. Right? This is a good question. No, because no, we want to get into the topic. Spawn, yani. spawn. We want to start oh, we'll talking right about. Yeah. So I never intended to pray five times a day. But that salah tasted really good. That actually tasted good. So I said to myself, you know what? Because I'm going to go home, delete my Facebook, delete my music. I'm going to get... Like, so I, I stopped everything in one day, cold turkey. Everything I quit. So I went home that day. And the next day I went to school. And my friends from school, I kind of ignored them because they were not the greatest companions. Then I went to Isha that night again. So I went to Isha and I would pray Isha every day in the masjid. I pray Isha in the masjid. But I'm not praying five times a day yet. But I'm praying Isha in the masjid. I went to the Aisha in the Masjid because I had nothing else to do because I wasn't hanging out anymore. So we went to the Masjid. That's the only other place to go. You want to leave the house, you know? So when I was praying Aisha in the Masjid every day, something crazy happened. Naturally, I met people that were just like me, young like me, and they're in the Masjid. And they're cool too. So I was like, yeah, the Masjid had cool people too. So after, after Salat al-Isha, <laughs> we'd hang out in the lobby of ICPC Patterson. Memories I'll never forget ever. Wallahi, memories. I'll, some of the guys I used to hang out with, they're famous now. And they're imams in Texas and Dallas and... And they're in charge of Islamic relief in this that state, in this state. Wallahi, famous. We all, all started at ICPC Patterson Isha. Wallahi. The measure is strange. Wallahi, ICPC is like the source of all good. There's so many people that are famous now. It's not important to be famous, but like they're famous now. But they're from ICPC. I used to know them from Fajr and Isha every day at that time. So I was hanging out there, talking to the guys. And I made two or three. I made a bunch of friends. But my, my grandparents, I lived with my grandparents. They went to Miami to visit my uncle in the winter. So I had the house to myself. So I told these three guys to come over my house. I was like, yo, let's come to my house. So they came to my house. I'm going to fast forward. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, they came to my house and they said, you have to pray Fajr. Like they were leaving my house at 3 a.m. We hung out until 3 a.m. Fajr is at 5 a.m. They said, Ismail, make sure you pray Fajr. This one guy, he's like, yo, Ismail, make sure you pray Fajr. I said, Fajr, what, bro? I don't pray like that, man. Relax. He goes, no, no, no. You have to pray Salat al-Fajr. You have to pray Fajr. Fajr is in two hours, man. Salat al-Amud al-Din or Salat al-Amad al-Din and al-Ahd al-Ladhi bayna wa bayna al He goes, he told me all these ahadith I never heard before about the importance of Salat. You know, the differentiating factor between us and them is the prayer and Salat is the pillar of the religion and Salat is this and Salat is that. I go to him, Jazakallah khair, and I close the door. And he, sl- he, he kicked the door open and it was really cold. I was like, yo, it's cold. He goes, give me your word that you'll pray Fajr. Give me your word that you'll pray Fajr. I was going back and forth with him. The other guy, his name is Abdurrahman Ramadan. He looked at me, he said, Ismail, khalas, you tell me you pray Fajr, bro. We want to go home too. So I said, khalas. I was like, I'll pray Fajr. I gave him my word. So I stayed up that day in my room. Like I was like falling asleep, waking up, falling asleep, waking up. Really inconvenienced by this Fajr thing. And I prayed Fajr that day. And alhamdulillah, since that day, I've never ever missed a salah in my life. And that's been like about more than 15 years now. Maybe about 15 years now. No, 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 no. About 13 years now. Yeah, I missed Salahs from the timing, but I would make them up. So I don't have any Salah in my conscience that I owe since that day, since that Fajr. That Fajr sparked everything. Getting to his question, what happened when I started praying five times a day? Because now I'm praying five times a day. I prayed that Fajr, I don't know what happened. I prayed Dohr that day, Asr that day. I never missed a Salah again. This brother, I ended up not talking to him for years. This brother that forced me to pray Fajr. Just this last summer, I called him up. I haven't talked to him in years. And I go, I'm going to keep his name unknown so he gets all the reward. I was like, I, was like, I wanted to thank you because you're the reason why I pray Salah. And I was an imam in Florida. And he goes, no, bro, no, bro. This is like he's being humble. 
I go, no, I wanted to thank you. Wallahi, because it was that day at Fajr. It was that day in the cold, but when, when he came to my house. So I fell in love with Salah. And naturally, naturally, Salah made me leave off all these other small harams that I didn't intend to leave off. They just left. They just left. Like, إِنَّ الصَّلَاةَ تَنْهَى عَنِ الْفَحْشَاءِ Allah, he says in the Quran in Surah Ankabut that indeed the prayer, it protects from indecency and wrongdoing. It protects from haram. It's a shield from haram. Yeah? And, and the remembrance of Allah is all greater. And Allah knows everything that you do. And this, I felt this ayah magnified in my lifetimes a hundred million. Because everything I did went out the window because of salah. And then... Now that I pray Salah and I go to the masjid and I love Salah, I felt empty and bankrupt. I felt like I really wanted to learn Arabic and Quran because I want to read Quran and understand Quran because now I love Salah and it tastes so good. And I love the masjid and I don't love music anymore and I love halal and I love all this stuff and I love the Quran so much but I don't know how to read Arabic and I don't know Arabic. So I'm dying to learn Arabic. I was dying to learn Arabic. I just graduated high school. I went to Rutgers Newark for one year. And I would just be, I was, I was really interested in learning Arabic. And then Muhammad, that summer, that Ramadan, we were in Taraweeh together. Speaking about pious companionship, I've been great friends with Muhammad, all because of the masjid. And he had a similar story as well. He had a very similar upbringing as well. And uh, I got to know him in the masjid from the youth events. And then he also changed like, around the same time as me. And then we're in the masjid together all the time in, in Taraweeh, in uh, Qiyam al-Layl, in I'tikaf. Uh, and uh, I think I told him about, you could just say this for the story. Did I tell you that I want to go study? And he said, me too. And we said, let's go. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. So Sheikh Osama had come back from, yes. Sheikh Osama yeah. Sheikh Yasser, they both came back from Egypt. And I had, they had just graduated that year. So they came back, and our plan was to go to Medina. Sure. Right? We were, we were, we were set that we wanted to go to Medina University, because that, that was the university that everybody wanted to go at that time. Mm. I think even till now, you know, yeah. a lot of people still want to go there. And it was because uh, a lot of the speakers, at least at that time, were graduates from that school. It was a free ride, complete, everything was free. You got a monthly stipend of a certain amount from the Saudi government. And you got a free plane ticket every year to go and to come back. So it was like, it was, it, it was, was a, a, it was a, a best scenario. It was yeah. a dream destination. Yeah. It's like Disney World. Yeah, so then yeah. that year. I was uh, trying to go there. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> we, we had uh, submitted our papers, and then we went to Umrah. You went to Umrah, you, so. you, you interviewed. So. I went to Umrah, I interviewed. I went to Umrah that year, that summer, uh, with ICPC. They had an Umrah group. I'm just going to say this story. Three seconds, three seconds. Just, just how Allah is amazing and how the masjid is the best place in the world. And how you only find good people in the masjid. This was the second Umrah group that ICPC had. The first Umrah group was the year before. I wasn't practicing back then. Allah guided me. So now I was in the masjid every day. This brother walked up to me about a month before the second Umrah group took off. And he goes, yo, Ismail, are you going to the Umrah? I go, I would love to go to Umrah. I don't have money like that. $3,000. Where am I getting $3,000 from? He, Wallah al-Azim, on the spot. He took his checkbook out. And he wrote me a check for the Umrah. He goes, go to Umrah make da'a for me. May Allah bless him. May Allah bless him. Amen. You know, like one sincere act you do could take you to Jannah. You know, one sincere act you do in your life could take you to Jannah. Just be sincere in everything you do. So he gave me that, that Umrah ticket. And then I went to Umrah. So I had applied to the University of Medina. And you have to do an interview for them. So when I was in Umrah, I told Dr. Ahmad. He was in Umrah too. ICPC told him to go with the Umrah group. So he was there. He was an employee for ICPC. So I went with Dr. Ahmad to the University of Medina. And I got interviewed there. The guy asked me a couple of questions. Like baby questions. I didn't know any of them. So yeah, maybe that's why I didn't get excited. <laughs> yeah, so then after that, that was, that, was the, that was our main goal. To go to Medina. Yeah. But then Sheikh Osama had come back Sorry. that year. 
and uh, he was giving talks. ICPC had had him for the for Ramadan for the Ramadan Ramadan events, and uh, we started to speak to him about the idea of going. You met you met another brother, oh. Ahmed Billu. Oh yeah yeah. Yeah. So oh, that, yeah. that was that brother. This brother he was actually a graduate from Medina University, and he told he gave us the idea that if you want to go to Medina, don't wait to get accepted. Don't put your life on hold for it. Because a lot of people, this is, this is another thing that we yeah. can speak about, is that a lot of people, uh, when they seek knowledge or when they go into the idea of seeking knowledge, they think that they have to put their life on hold, that everything has to stop. They have to stop college. They have to stop work. They just have to focus on this one goal. Um, and that, that's not true. You know, we'll talk about why you should always continue. Regardless of what you're doing, you should always keep a dose of knowledge and keep continue what you're doing. So that was his, his advice to us. He said, don't wait to get accepted. What I did is I went to Egypt, because before, you, if we didn't know a lick of Arabic, either one of us. And in order to go into the university, you have to, speak, you have to learn Arabic, because the curriculum is Arabic. So they'd have a two-year language institute before the four-year bachelors. So He's his speaking about the University of Medina, they have a two-year yeah. mahad for Arabic language. So this guy that we met, Ahmed Billu, was explaining this to us. Yeah. He goes, oh, if you're serious about going, go to Egypt. Yeah, yeah. so he was saying, go to Egypt. Study Arabic in Egypt, and once you get accepted, you go there, and you'll have free time to do other things. So in those two years, if you go into the Language Institute, you'll be able to memorize Quran, you'll be able to attend classes, or you can go straight into the, the faculty itself. So that's when he, we had the idea of going. Yeah. And, and, and then we, we, we took that step. We took that step into going. Yeah. So me and Muhammad were in Atikaf on Ramadan the last ten nights. We were sleeping upstairs in the second room in the ICPC Patterson with Abu Naim and Amu Fikri and all the original team. So, uh, like he said, Sheikh Osama happened to come back that year. He just graduated from Azhar. He wasn't back permanently. He came for the summer and he signed a summer contract with ICPC to, to give classes and do some, some stuff in the masjid. So what, after this brother Ahmed Billu told us, "Oh, go to Egypt. Don't put your life on hold for the University of Medina because you were waiting for a year for them to get back to us." He said, go to Egypt if you're serious. I said, go, what's in Egypt? He goes, study Arabic in Egypt. And then, like he said, when you get to Medina, you'll have time to do other things because there's two years before you enter the faculty in Medina. So th me and Muhammad now took this idea seriously. So we asked around, and they said, oh, go talk to Sheikh Osama. He studied in Egypt. He studied in Egypt. So I went to speak to Sheikh Osama with Sheikh, with Sheikh Muhammad. We went to him, and he was sitting on the back of the wall with a book open because he's a big scholar. He's always reading. MashaAllah, may Allah bless him and increase him. He's very knowledgeable. Allah, he's very underrated. May Allah bless him and increase him and protect him and his family. Uh, and we asked him about going to Egypt to study Arabic. Like, what do you think? And he goes, Nam, it's great. Like, why not? And he put us in touch with Sheikh Yasser Fahmi, who put us in touch with a center in Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, we wanted to, I wanted to speak about, touch about specifically about the difficulties once we got to Egypt, right? Um, a lot of the times when, when you think about seeking knowledge, or a lot of people... They fantasize it. They fantasize it, right. Um, especially now, there's there's a culture of becoming a speaker, or becoming like a influencer, or a, a social media um, personality, right? Yeah. Especially now. So, uh, for a lot of people, uh, knowledge becomes a means to just gain influence, right? And uh, they also romanticize the idea of seeking knowledge. Because the grass always looks greener on the other side. That's true. Right? So uh, what are some of the things that you would say in terms of, you know, facing difficulty when seeking knowledge and, yeah. you know, why someone needs to be patient when doing so, it? Sheikh Mohammed brings up a very good point. He says people, they really romanticize the idea of seeking knowledge. 
kind of like uh, Snapchat and Instagram, people like to go overseas, they study, they take pictures, and people want to go do that and then come back and talk and be tarawih and be cool and wear nice tobes and kufis. Like it's really honestly, well, uh, like a celebrity, celebrity type imam type of look. Back then, I think uh, you would agree with me, there wasn't really that kind of, it wasn't there yeah, yet. No, it, was, it wasn't it was there yet. It was probably starting, but it was it starting up yeah. back then, but it wasn't strong. Uh, difficulties or adversities in seeking knowledge is a book that will never end. It's a, it's a 400,000 page book because it's nothing but difficult. It's not, there's no ease in it. The ease is only, the ease or the gust of wind or the beauty of it is only in the knowledge that you're seeking or you're gaining because knowledge is light and it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Anybody in Egypt that's studying in Egypt that's from here in the West, they're not enjoying their life there. They're not enjoying life, but they love it because of the knowledge that they're getting, the Quran that they're getting or the, whatever they're studying because knowledge is amazing and it's beautiful. Uh, but I would say that the difficulty started from the second we left and we didn't have any family in Egypt. I don't have family in Egypt and neither did Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, we, we, we left from here to Amsterdam. There was a layover and then we went to uh, Cairo and we got to Cairo and the brother was meant to pick us up. This is just the beginning. This is just like the welcome to Egypt. So uh, we were told that someone's going to pick us up from the center that Sheikh Yasser Fahmi put us in touch with. So we waited about like two hours, I think, or an hour or 30 minutes. It was a long wait. We waited some time. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we waited a long time and there was no one there. And I had no one to call. I don't have a phone. And neither does he. So I was nervous. I'm sure he was nervous as well. And then this guy comes up to us and he goes, Merkaz uh, Alim. And I go, Nan. And then uh, he took us to the center. And we got to the center. Like the room that they got, the accommodation that they got. We opened the door. There's about 700 cups of tea that were, they've been there for like three months with flies upon flies, living and growing flies. And like, the beds were stained with sweat, and the pillows were stained with sweat and blood, and uh, everything <laughs> was dirty. <laughs> everything was dirty. The bathroom, the water wasn't turning on or something. Like, it was really bad. Alhamdulillah, I think me and Muhammad went with the same mindset, going to Egypt, we're thinking, oh, it's going to be bad. So we, like, I, I was expecting bad. But wallahi, no cover, no pillow, no clean, nothing. It was difficult, so we both took our shirts off, and we slept with our undershirts. We put our shirts on the pillowcases, so that we could have a pillowcase to sleep on. And then we went to Fajr in the Masjid there. This is a side note. We went to Fajr that day at this Masjid called Masjid Salam. It's on Shara Ahmed al-Zumar. And Al-Hayl Ashir. It's the beginning of this district called the 10th district in Medinat Nasr in Cairo. When I walked in that day, I had an iPhone 4. I took a picture. I'm, I took a picture. I still have this picture on my old computer. I took a picture when I walked in right at the Adhan of Fajr time at 3.07 a.m. It was like 3.07. Fajr is early in Egypt. I walked in and I took a picture. And there's a, a, a guy in the picture or two guys in the picture. I don't know. I forgot about that picture. Ten years go by. Twelve years go by. I'm on my old computer. And I open up that picture and I saw it. And the guy that was there standing is the, the guy that gives the adhan. He's there every day for the past twelve years. That guy goes for every salah. At that time, I didn't know him. Throughout the years in Egypt, I got to know the guy well. He's a very good person. You know, He lives close to the mosque and he gives the adhan. All I was thinking when I saw that picture, I got goosebumps everywhere. I was like, yo, this guy was there the day I arrived to Egypt, and he's the one that gave the event that day, and he goes every single day, and he's been going his whole, like, what kind of, like, steadfastness is this? This guy is amazing. My heart really, like, uh, I, I love this guy so much, and I just, I remembered him that day. Yeah. Yeah, so we went to yeah. the Mejri Fajr. Yeah. Yeah, go so, ahead. no, so I, was, I was just going to bounce off of that, the, the idea of steadfastness. Yeah, go and, on. and seeking knowledge and difficulty. So there's, there's so many stories we could share, right? Like, not just us getting there, but even the day after and, and the, the, the four hours that we have to wait to get our visa. And, and it's just, there are difficulties. And it, it brings you back to the hadith of the Prophet where he says, 
من سلك طريقا يلتمس فيه علما سهل الله له طريقا الى الجنه whoever embarks on a road uh, seeking knowledge Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the road to Jannah easy for him. You hear that hadith and you realize that ilm is such a big thing, right? Knowledge is so big. If you embark on a path to seek knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the path to Jannah easy. And you think that, wow, this is a great reward. This is something that everyone wants. But when you embark the journey, you realize why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it easy. Because the, the road to knowledge, whether it's here or it's, it's overseas, is one that's filled with difficulty. It's filled with uh, challenges. It's filled with obstacles. It's filled with um, moments of lethargy where you where you're you're falling off, coming back. So all these you know all these difficulties and obstacles that come in the path of knowledge makes you, in one way or another, deserving of Allah's mercy in some sense. So that Allah subhanahu wa taala makes jannah easy for you. And I just want to bring this back down to our level. When we speak about seeking knowledge, seeking knowledge doesn't have to mean that uh, you have to become a sheikh or you have to become a scholar or you have to go uh, overseas and, and dedicate 10 years or 6 years or whatever it may be to learn ilm. The Prophet ﷺ in Hadith in Ibn Majah, he says, That seeking knowledge is obligatory on every Muslim. That's the knowledge that you need for your daily life. So everyone has a certain level of knowledge that is obligatory on them. So the scholar, the one who embarks on, the, on, on seeking knowledge, his obligation is to become a master at whatever field he's studying. Sahih? Yeah, yeah. And then the regular person, if he's a businessman, it's obligatory for him to know all of the rulings of business. Sure. Yeah. And the person who's, uh, who's now... Uh, he's reached the age of puberty, it's obligatory for him to now how to know how to do tahara, how to pray, all these things. So, yeah, so when we say when we say that, so when we speak about seeking knowledge, seeking knowledge is not like this high level that we're talking about. We're talking about a, in a, on an individual level, every single one of us should be seeking knowledge and should be learning and should be growing and should be taking that knowledge which we have to know, every single one of us. So you're buying and selling stocks, you have to understand, you have to know the knowledge behind are the transactions that I'm involved with, are they permissible? You're buying, selling crypto, is it permissible? You're, uh, you're, you're involved in different transactions. Every single thing that you're involved in has, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a requirement for, from you at that very moment. And so you, you're obligated to know. And even at a, at a basic level, when it comes to our spirituality, there is an oblig obligatory knowledge that we have to know, not just rulings. But when it comes to our diseases in our hearts, our spirituality, yeah. our sincerity, these are topics that we should talk about and we should learn about so that we can purify ourselves and to purify our hearts and be closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with pure hearts and pure souls, right? How many people attended Sheikh Osama's uh, beginning of guidance? Only the sisters. So if you attended that, you, you know there's, there's a section in that, in that book speaking about the ailments of the heart the diseases of the heart, that every single one of us, except for those who Allah has saved, every single one of us is afflicted with to a certain degree. So that knowledge is also obligatory. How do we rid ourselves of those diseases? So when we speak about seeking of knowledge, it's not like this high abstract or you know high level of knowledge that we're talking about. We're talking about just even on a basic level. 
what are we doing individually to seek knowledge? What are we doing individually to learn about our religion? Right? Go on, go on. So, so those two points, uh, you know, it, it's gonna it's gonna come with difficulty, but uh, you have to make up your mind that this is a, this is knowledge that is is incumbent on me. It's obligatory. It's mandatory. Mandatory for me in order to save myself. In order for me to come to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala with a, with a clean slate, with all my liabilities put forward. All my liabilities put forward. You know, and I like giving this example a lot. Is that if one of us were to buy a gift for our mothers, right? Which gift would be more uh, would be more beloved to her? If we just ran into a random store and bought like the most expensive thing and just brought it home, or would it be those that specific gift that my mother needs at this moment? Like she's it's been on her mind. She's been scrolling on her phone and she's been looking at it for a while. And she really wants this, and she really needs it. Which, which, which gift would be more meaningful to her? The first or the second? The second, because it, it has meaning. It's what she wants. It's what she needs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above all these examples, but just to bring this close, when it comes to pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, knowledge allows us to prioritize and to understand what is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from me at this given moment. Right? At this, at this given moment, at this given time, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala want from me? And that's why it's so important. You know, it, it allows us to prioritize and say, this is important, this is not. You know, and one of the, the best examples of this is that there's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says, just, just everyone can, 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 uh, can participate, inshallah. What are some of the highest levels of ibadah or the highest acts of ibadah? Just from the top of your head. Prayer, fasting, huh? Hajj, doing doing good for others, huh? Being good to parents, making other people smile. You notice the sisters? They they're they're picking deeds that are like, that are like that affect the human being, and the brothers are just like abstract, like just like concrete acts, like black and white. But, uh, so you have all of these deeds, right? Which one do you choose? This hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, it, it shows us the importance of knowledge. Where the Prophet ﷺ, he says, The Prophet ﷺ says, that for me to walk in the procurement of my brother's need. My brother has a need. He needs help with something. He has a difficulty. He needs to go to the social security office. He needs to go register his kids to the, in the school. He doesn't, know, he doesn't have anyone to go with him. Rabbi I'm saying, for me to go and procure the need of my brother is more beloved to me than to make a'tikaf in my masjid for one month. And like, which masjid is this? This is Masjid Nabawi, the second holiest masjid. You get thousand, a thousand reward per, per salah for praying in that masjid. And the Prophet I'm saying, to go and help my brother in a time of need is more beloved for me than to do a'tikaf, to stay in the masjid the whole time in Masjid Nabawi. But if someone were to not know this hadith, or the Prophet were not to give us this, this rubric, you'd never be able to prioritize. You'd never be able to know what's higher on the priority list, what's more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so knowledge that allows, it gives us that, gives us that rubric, it gives us that measuring stick. 
Absolutely, that's a very good point. And so it's important for every single person. It's yeah. not just for the student of knowledge or the scholar or... No, no, absolutely, it's yeah. a very good point he makes. Prioritizing and understanding what's more important is only gifted to you through having knowledge. Because if you don't have knowledge, you won't know what's more important. And Islam comes, and Islam is very realistic. Islam comes to realism. It's not that someone needs help, but I want to stay in the masjid and do i'tikaf. So I leave him in his help that he needs, and I don't help him. It doesn't make sense. And the Prophet comes to clarify this. And if you didn't know the hadith, how would you know that? You say, no, i'tikaf in the masjid, the Prophet is better. Same thing for the individual that doesn't work, and he just stays in the masjid the whole day. And his mom... Uh, is, has no money to pay the bills. This brother is not doing something good. He's doing a disservice. It would be more noble for this person. It would be more rewarding for this person to go and get a job and pray salah in his job. You know, you could pray salah in your job. It counts. You get, full, you know, get reward for salah. It counts. Going to the masjid is great. But working and paying your mother's bills so she has a roof over her head and contributing and contributing to paying bills is more important than praying in the masjid. Because people have a, a misunderstanding and this is all from lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. Uh, if someone knows properly, he knows that the Prophet he told us in the hadith that there was two brothers. One of them was on the mountain worshipping Allah all day and all night. And the other one was busy working and providing for the family. The Prophet said that the one that's working is much better than the one in the mountain. Just worshipping Allah all day. One that he's leaving his family in need. Just an announcement for the sisters that have young children to please. Uh, uh, the downstairs, there's a nice TV set up for the kids and uh, they could follow along from downstairs. So they could allow all, all the other people here to... Uh, be able to concentrate better. Jazakallah khair. Yeah, so, so you spoke about, you know, specifically knowledge and seeking knowledge and prioritizing different acts and things like this. Um, I wanted to say something from something he was mentioning earlier. He was saying there's something, there's a base level of knowledge that everyone has to have as a Muslim. It's called ilm al-daruri. It's something that's mandatory and incumbent upon every Muslim to know. I'll give an example. Like you say, what does that mean? Many times someone doesn't know a specific ruling about salah or wudu. And he goes, oh, but I didn't know that. We say to you, that that's not an excuse. You know, you having ignorance in this thing, not knowing how to make wudu properly, or not knowing how to pray properly, you, ha you, have, you, you having ignorance in this, in this regard is not something that you're going to be excused for. You should know. Anybody that reaches a certain age, there's certain things he has to know. He has to know how to pray. And knowing how to pray means you, know how, you have to know how to make wudu. Knowing how to make wudu means you, know, you have to know how to clean yourself after you use the bathroom properly in order for your salah to count, because there's conditions of the prayer. Being in a state of ritual purity and physical purity is one of the six conditions of your prayer to count. You know? So it's not an excuse not to know. No, you're, if, you, if you have reached the age of taklif, which is the age of puberty in Islam, then uh, you have to know certain things. And I wanted to say something about this as well, and that's that I continued to study in Egypt. So I went back after the first year, and I continued there for many years. So I continued my pursuit of knowledge in Egypt, overseas, which is one way. But there's another way that you could pursue knowledge, and my friend Sheikh Mohammed is the best example of the second way. Yani, there's no excuse, especially in today's world post-corona, there's no excuse. You don't have to go to Egypt or Liberia or anywhere to study. You don't have to go anywhere to study. You can study at home. You can make use of the internet that you're paying $65 a month from. You can make use of it. You make good use of it. You know, you could use all these things. They're blessings. Wallahi, they're blessings. Technology is a blessing. It could be the greatest blessing and it could be the greatest curse. You could use these things for good things, and there's tons of courses and all, like, and all these important subjects that you need to know, you know? You could do everything that we did in Egypt, you could do now over here. Like, everything. 100%, yeah. Yeah. And even the masjid, yeah. you know, uh, one of the biggest blessings of... Yeah. of uh, I remember when we left to Egypt, yeah. that was one thing, is that when we left, uh, I remember, like, the first couple of months before that, I was like, okay, I want to seek knowledge. And I remember... Uh, 
uh, Abdullah here, one of, one of, the, one of our, we started to drive around to different places. So we went to Brooklyn. We went to different places to find a teacher. SubhanAllah. We wanted to see, I wanted to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get now, I'm gonna get serious about seeking knowledge. I want to find a teacher who's going to sit down and teach me. And so I remember we went to Brooklyn. We went to different places, and everywhere we were going, it was just like a dead end. Dead end. Dead end. There, was, there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of mashayikh at the time, so. especially the, those who spoke English. And so, like, you know, it was kind of important for us to go at that time. Yeah. Um, but now, yeah. fast forward 10, 12 years later. Speak about al-Maghrib and all these things. Like, you don't get knowledge of here. So, so th there's, different, there's different types of knowledge. There's different levels of knowledge. We were talking about that, you know. Yeah. And so everyone's, everyone's, the audience, it depends on the audience, right? Depends the, the, the platform and the audience may differ. Um, but specifically, I want to say now that we're here, 10 years, 12 years later, like we didn't have this opportunity that we have now with Sheikh Osama, for example. Like Sheikh Osama, you mentioned, is a great blessing. Like the classes that Sheikh Osama is teaching here are literally your Dururi knowledge. You know, the things that you need to know, and even above that. So he has his fiqh classes where you learn the rulings that you need to know. He has Quran classes. He has spirituality classes. You know, they just did beginning of guidance, which is probably one of the cornerstones of, of spirituality. And then they're going to have, I think, Ustaz uh, Munzi uh, mentioned that they're going to do a class on adab. So now the options are, are very re readily available online and also in person. You know, and I think uh, Sheikh Ismail as well, you're going to start, inshallah, you're going to start classes at, at ICPC yeah. Yunus. So uh, it's important for not everyone needs to be a scholar, but everyone should be a student of knowledge. Inshallah. Everyone should be a seeker of knowledge. So you don't have to be a scholar. You know, w w for the scholar, it's obligatory for him to master his science, to learn and to preserve the deen. So not everyone's required to do that. That's a fard kifaya. Right? A fard kifaya is something, it's a communal obligation. If a certain amount of people uh, fulfill that obligation, then the, 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 the sin is uplifted from the rest of the community. Uh, so the scholars, they take care of that obligation. But then there's that daruri knowledge, that fard knowledge that you have to know for yourself. And so everyone should be a seeker of knowledge, but not everyone needs to be a scholar. And uh, we can connect this with, with the revival of the Ummah, and I think it's very important to yeah. speak about this specifically, what role uh, knowledge plays in the revival of the Ummah. You know, I think in the last hundred years, the Ummah's, and before the hundred years, the Ummah's kind of been in a steady decline, especially in the last hundred years or so, right? And we see that it's not because of of Islam that the Ummah went down, but it's the quite the opposite. It's because of the lack of Islam that we're in the state that we're in. You know, and we look at Gaza, we look at Palestine, we look at uh, the Uyghurs, we look at every, you know, wherever the Muslims are oppressed. Uh, one of the biggest remedies for that is knowledge. Because once, once we actually have that knowledge and we implement that knowledge, we'll be deserving of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's victory and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's aid. Right? And we saw this during the time of the Crusades. Absolutely. Right? Um, when the Crusades happened and the Muslims lost Jerusalem, it was a time where the Muslims were divided, the Muslims were far from the deen, and it was only after 80 years that Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi, rahimahullah, he went back and he reconquered Jerusalem. But there was so much that happened before that. With Imad al-Din al-Zingi and Nur al-Din al-Zingi, no one talks about them. But these men, they established schools, right? The, the, yeah. the, the, the Nizamiya schools. Sure that produced the likes of Imam Ghazali 
and other great scholars who, who put life back into the ummah. So there was a revival in the ummah due, yeah. to, due, due to the knowledge that was being spread at that right. time. Right. And the likes of Salah ad-Din and his generation were a product of that knowledge that was being spread, such as Ahmad ad-Din Zinki and Nur ad-Din Zinki. They say that Bayt al-Maqdis was open with the Qalam of Ibn Zinki. They say that Bayt al-Maqdis, Jerusalem, that was uh, opened by Salah ad-Din al-Ayyubi and his army, right? They're the ones who uh, which was one opened, victory, uh, uh, conquered, conquered or, or opened, yeah. freed, Fatah, yeah. <laughs> They're they the conquered, yeah. They liberated, liberated, liberated. liberated. They're the ones that liberated Jerusalem from the Crusaders. Salah ad-Din al-Ayyubi and his army. And they say that Quds was opened by Qalam ibn Zinqi, by the ink pen, by the pen of ibn Zinqi, because he was the teacher of Salah ad-Din. And he's the one that made him and all the people of his generation have this revival of Islamic sciences and love. And they produced many scholars due to their schools, such as Imam al-Ghazali. At that time, there was a revival of Islamic sciences. The product of the revival of the Islamic sciences and people gaining knowledge was their understanding that the Quds is an important important for the Muslims. It's important for the Muslim it's an important uh, and the cause. importance the importance of unity, the importance of striving for the cause so of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the importance of unifying the Ummah, the importance of, of rallying behind yeah. uh, a leader. So all these things happened like the because of knowledge today yeah. is very apparent due to the extreme Distress the Muslim Ummah is now in terms of Gaza, and no one's able to do anything. Yeah. The, 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 the understanding of the importance of Al Aqsa and Al Quds and all these things is very weak to in today's world. Yeah. And, the, and even the state of the Muslim world yeah. goes back a lot to the lack of action. Because when we speak about knowledge, knowledge shouldn't be devoid of action, it, ha it comes with action. So when we say knowledge, that knowledge should uh, have osmosis through your body and through the community, and it should make us a community of action. You know, but but how can it make us a community of action if there's no base, there's no foundation to actually go back to? So when we tie it back to even our current events, every single one of us has a duty to learn this religion, to be able to uh, to transfer the, the knowledge of this religion and to propagate this religion and to show this religion to others for what it really is. And none of us can do that. Faqir al-shayt la yati. The one who doesn't have something cannot give it. So... How can we uplift the ignorance? How can we show the people the beauty of Islam? How can we show other Muslims the beauty of Islam? Only f through us becoming more educated about Islam and realizing the beauty of Islam. Um, and so with that, inshallah, we can probably... Um, I wanted to highlight yeah. a couple of things from our journeys in, uh, in Egypt. We, there was a couple things me and him spoke about we wanted to bring up. And that's that how he said that things are often romanticized, but it's not really like that in reality. And going to Egypt and studying in Egypt was very... Uh, difficult in every regard, right? You're far from your house, you're thousands of miles away, uh, and the, the, the luxuries of America are no longer with you. The luxuries of America are no longer with you, and you're far from your family, it's very difficult. And also, you see many people that come to Egypt. I met so many people in my eight years in Egypt, hundreds of people, and a lot of them don't last. And a lot of them don't last. They go back, and it's very rare to see someone that remains. They say in Azhar, they say this, the Western students, they used to have a joke amongst each other that when you graduate from Azhar, you don't get a uh, certification in Sharia or in Quran or in Da'wah or in Tafsir or in Hadith. You don't get a certification in that. You get a certification in Sabr. You get grade A, grade <laughs> A certification. You graduate and you get number one certification in patience because it's nothing but patience. No one ever left Azhar due to the difficulty of the studies. Because if you love something, it's not difficult. Because the people that are coming to Egypt to study in Azhar, 
they're leaving off their home and their family and the luxuries of their, their country to come to Azhar to study. They have love for the deen and love for the sciences of the deen. So it's not difficult if you love it. So fiqh and tafsir, all this stuff is easy and beloved to the person that wants it. Yeah? So uh, no one ever stopped studying overseas due to the difficulty of the subjects or the sciences, even though some of them are difficult. But no, it's always due to lack of patience with the system. Lack of patience in regards to the system. He gave a, a small example in the beginning of the talk saying, oh, he said, I'm sure you had uh, memories of waiting four hours to get your visa from the Mujamma'ah. The Mujamma'ah is a building in Tahrir Square. Tahrir Square is Freedom Square where they had the Egyptian Revolution, not to get too political on. Yeah? <laughs> they, <laughs> there's a large building there, it's about 20 floors high. On the fourth floor of the 20 floors was the passport office. So uh, us as US citizens, US passport holders, we could go get a, a visa and it should take one day. But he's speaking about it because it's very difficult to get it. You've got to wait in line. You've got to push the Russian guy in front of you and the guy behind you pushes you back and it's very sweaty. And you've got to go get a stamp that's th uh, three janae from the stamp. Go to buy a stamp from you. Go downstairs. You make a left. You go down that street. It's 110 degrees. You go there. You ask him for the stamp. He has no more stamps. You go to the other stamp place. He has no more stamps. You've got to get four prints of this. Then you go back up. You're sweating. You go back. You wait another two hours online. Yeah, you no, could, no, no. Or you can go to the American University because you're American. They let you in. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, there's yeah. A, there's, so there's an <laughs> American University by <laughs> Tafti Square. It's right next to it. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, it, it's actually, I think it's American soil. It's considered American yeah, soil. Course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the embassy. So, yeah, so you, you, uh, you just go and you show your passport. And, um, and once they see your passport, they see that you're American, they would let you go in. And so you could just say it. it's like It's like peace in like chaos. You know, the rest of, once you step out, it's, it's like just... It's a vortex and entering America <laughs> entirely. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, the point is, it's very difficult to get a visa. He was speaking about the visa that you get before you enter Al-Azhar. It's a tourist visa. It's a three-month visa. Only if he knew what I went to to get the Azhar visa. Wallahi, only if he knew. Oh, my God. To get the Azhar visa, if you had an appointment on Tuesday, you had to go Monday night at 12 a.m. to write your name on a list with another 3,000 people on the same list. Then you come back at 6 a.m. and you wait in line until they open at 8 a.m. When they open at 8 a.m., they don't start working until 9.30 a.m. because they have to eat breakfast first. <laughs> so they sit and they eat their breakfast in front of you. And you're standing and you're sweating. And you got into 10 fights already with the 10 different nationalities, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Russia, and Dagestan. You got in fights with everyone already. I waited once. From 3 a.m., I, I wrote my name down on the passport office. I was up to, I'll never forget this story ever in my life. I went at 3 a.m. I put my name down. I went back home. I came back. At 6 a.m., I waited in, for two hours from 6 to 8 a.m. It's not, it's not pleasant. There's a fly in your face, and it hurts, and everything is sweaty, it's hot, and there's people waiting in line. They finally opened the gates. We finally entered the building, and then they didn't start working until the hour after they were meant to work. Then they started working. So I waited then from 8 a.m. till 3 p.m. I was the next one in line to get my passport stamped. She said, come back next week. Wallahi, I was so hurt. I was so hurt. <laughs> And well, I was like, yo, I'm done with Azhar, I'm done with Egypt, I'm going home, I want to go home. Hold on, this is, this is a good point, because we're going to start taking the but questions now. I want to now. say one thing, that I met a brother, he was from Gaza. He was from Gaza. Back, and he's like, he's like, don't be hurt, don't be hurt. He was like an older type brother, he was there, I got to know him just 10 hours ago, like in front of me with the line. He's like, I'll take you home in my car. And the whole way home, I was fuming. I was burning. My, my veins were pumping out, I was so angry. I was like, Wallah, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And he was just saying nice words to me the whole time. He was like, you came here for Elim, this is hard. May Allah accept it, this is difficult. I understand that this is difficult, understand that this is difficult. He's just being nice and soothing. And he was from Gaza. So I was like, uh, he dropped me off, and so I didn't have to take a bus, he dropped me off. And uh, that brother, he, like, he remained in my head forever. Like this memory remained in my head forever. Because I went back the next week and I got it done. I got it done. 
But wallahi, when you go overseas to study, you just get, you get, you get a certification in patience. You learn patience. You learn what it is to be oppressed. There's no oppression in America. If you go to the DMV here, you wait two hours and you think there's oppression. There's no oppression here. If you go in Egypt and you get paperwork done in Egypt or you get like a license, I had a motorcycle, I got my license for the motorcycle. That took me like three months because I didn't know you have to pay a bribe. I didn't know that. He kept saying, come next week. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, so we're going into, we're going into the Q&A section right now. So we'll go, go ahead. Yeah, segment, inshallah. Um, there's already a couple questions that are coming in and inshallah you guys can send it, keep sending it in. Um, but uh, there was a question that someone asked uh, on the point that we mentioned how knowledge can affect the situation of the Ummah, specifically Gaza and the Uyghurs. And I, uh, this goes in hand in hand with what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and just follow, follow through with me with in, in terms of what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we I haven't figured out or anyone hasn't figured out in terms of how we can move forward, but definitely knowledge and revival of the Ummah is part of it. And why do I say this? There's a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu that seeks, speaks about the seeker of knowledge. And in the hadith, the Prophet says that the angels, they, it's the same hadith that we mentioned, they lower their wings for the seeker of knowledge out of, out of humility and out of rahmah. Yeah. And then the Prophet mentions, even the fish in the sea is seeking forgiveness mm -hmm. for the one who teaches the people goodness. The fish in the sea is making dua for the person who is teaching people goodness or teaching people alim. And you ask why? Why the fish? Why is the fish, or why are the animals making dua for the thought of alim, for the one who seeks knowledge? And the scholars they say that's because when a person learns how he learns knowledge, he learns how he should behave with every single living creation, from the human being down to the animal. And so the the, the fish is making dua for you because. Or the, or the animals are making a dua for you because they know that once you have knowledge, you will treat them correctly. You'll have mercy on them. You won't oppress them. You won't torture them when if you if you eat them for if you if you use them for food, you'll go when you you'll apply all of the, the the rights that they have or all the things that you need to do in order to show mercy to that creation. No, I'm, I'm just going to finish, inshallah. Oh, I just want to connect it, inshallah. I thought you were done asking about this, sorry. And that's also in the hadith of the Prophet, sallam, that he says, Allah has prescribed excellence. Allah has prescribed perfection in every single thing. Every single thing you do, Allah wants you to do it to the best of your ability, with excellence. You're not, you're not going to be perfect, but Allah wants you to exert the most you can in that. And then the Prophet gives you examples of what that means. That if you slaughter an animal for food, then make sure that you perfect that slaughtering. Meaning what? You make sure that, that that animal doesn't see the blade. You make sure that blade is sharp. You make sure that that animal's relaxed. He's not seeing other animals being killed. You do all these things. So that's ihsan in doing the dhabh. And then the Prophet says, and if you kill, obviously in the situation where you have to, then make sure you do it in the best, in the perf most perfect way. Whether that's a state when they're executing or it's in the battlefield or whatever it may be. Make sure you do it in the best way and with the least amount of pain and hardship for that person. To the point where you're showing even mercy to the transgressor and the oppressor sometimes. 
right? So why is this related to knowledge and the situation of the Ummah? Sheikh Ismail is talking about us going to Egypt and waiting four hours to get a visa, taking a full day to get things done. Can you imagine that if every single person in the Muslim world took this hadith, Inna Allah katab al-ihsan ala kulli shay. Allah prescribes excellence in everything. And they did that with excellence. So when the person who came to the visa office was excellent in the way they provided their service. And the one who was studying science was excellent in studying science. The one who was studying engineering was excellent in studying engineering. The contractor who's working on the road is showing excellence when he's building the road. He's not cheating. He's not doing anything out of the book. Everyone's doing everything with perfection. Because of what? Because of the deen. Because of their knowledge of what the Prophet ﷺ told us and what Allah prescribed on us. That knowledge, when it, when it transpires into, into action, everyone has ihsan. Where would the state of our countries back home be? Will they be dependent on other nations? Will they be in a state of disarray? Will they be ruled by tyrannical regimes? Will they be ruined by, ruled by oppressive people? Will they be ruled by people who have no worry about the ummah? Or will it be countries that are competent? The citizens of those com countries are competent. The agencies in those com countries are competent. The rulers of those countries are competent. And so what happens? The Muslims are in a state of strength. The Muslim nations are in a state of strength. The Muslims are not the ones who are being trampled on and, and, and walked all over in a state of complete khudlan, complete hu uh, hu uh, humiliation. humiliation. Because of what? Because we're dependent. Or the Muslim countries, we should say the Muslim majority countries are dependent. Why? Because we haven't perfected those things. How many Nobel Peace Prizes do, do the Muslim countries have? How many uh, awards for inventions and scientific inventions do the Muslim countries have? You know, we can come back and, and blame it on colonialism and, and all these other things and the world powers. But what are we doing on an individual level to change that situation? So when I say that knowledge will change the state of the Ummah is because knowledge will translate into action, it will ch translate into change, and it will lift the society. The societies will become the, the top. And that's what happened during the, the, the golden generations, yeah. right? Well, what happened during the Umayyad and the Abbasid Khilafat? All, why were the Muslims at the, at the peak? peak of everything. They were at the peak of everything. Why? Because when they saw the ayat of the Quran of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling you to, to reflect over the world, to look, over, look at the creation, they said, how can we learn about astronomy? How can we learn about the sciences? How can we progress so that we can appreciate Allah's Prophet's creation? And that's what allowed them to flourish. Right? So when we say going back to knowledge uh, will solve the issues of the Ummah, we mean the knowledge that translates into action, the knowledge that changes us, the knowledge that is ilmun nafi, that is, is knowledge that makes us act. It's not just like these didactic book knowledge that stays in our minds and we just sit in the mission and we talk about it. No, it's stuff that happens in the, in, in the doctor's office, yeah, at your workplace, in place. The Prophet used to always seek refuge in Allah from a knowledge that does not benefit. A knowledge that does not benefit is a knowledge that does not bring you closer to Allah and it's a knowledge that you do not implement. There's many people that have a lot of information in their head but they don't implement it. it there's, there's no point of it. It's going to be a proof against you on the day of judgment and not a proof for you. When you learn something, you should try to implement it. Abdullah bin Umar, he took many years to memorize the Quran. He took like 10 years to memorize Surah Al-Baqarah. And they asked, why it take you so long? He said, because I want to implement every ayah I memorize. Now you have people, they memorize the Quran. I was in Egypt, and these two brothers, if the woman could, uh, please stop having side conversations, please, so we could not lose our train of thought. 
I was in Egypt, and these two brothers, they asked me, oh, why are you memorizing the Quran? And I said, uh, I don't know, like uh, to memorize the Quran, to get closer to Allah, and to learn the book of Allah. And they said, oh, no, no, no you memorize the Quran, so you go lead tarawih. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And they said, oh, no, no, you learn the Quran, so you could go back home and learn to lead tarawih. This is an in insincere intention. This is an insincere intention. Knowledge should change the state of your heart. It should make you more sincere, not insincere. Because if you're insincere and you have knowledge, it becomes detrimental to the state of your heart. The next question is, um, it's kind of off topic, but uh, it's an important question. What are ways to allow our children in this age of Allah and allow them to start to pray? What knowledge or any tips can we tell them to start slowly? No, it's not that. It's for that. You have experience in the, in the community. Go ahead, Sheikh. No, please. I would say, from what, from what I would say is, uh, I would say actions speak a lot louder than words, and I would say to be the best example to your children. Because the father and mother that pray, and they're constantly praying in front of their child, their child is going to want to pray and automatically pray. The father that reads Quran in front of his child is going to make the child want to read Quran. And I say this because I saw this with my own eyes. I see someone that's steadfast on Salah, he brings his children to the masjid or he's always praying in front of his kids and his kids are babies still and they're, they're just implementing and they're following the father's footsteps or the mother's footsteps. They're dying to pray. They're dying to wear hijab because they see it implemented in their parents. It's, and then also this goes with also like uh, telling your child not to lie or telling your child not to do something but you go and you do it. How is your child going to follow you? Actions speak a lot louder than words and they go a lot farther than words. You know, you implementing and you being a source of being the best uh, role model to your children is the best, in my opinion. Yani to, you, you also tell them to pray, but you have to pray too. You can't tell your son to pray and you don't pray. Tell your son to go to the masjid and you never went to the masjid. Go on. Um, no, that's, that's all good. That's, that's all important. Is, uh, is them not seeing a, um, like not having that cognitive dissonance yeah. where, there's a, where there's a difference between what's being said and what's being done at home. Um, the next question was, inshallah, uh, you can keep sending in the questions if you have. Some of them are just recommendations. Inshallah, whatever recommendations are coming, a lot of the sisters are sending questions for uh, programming for sisters and stuff like this. Inshallah, we'll share it with Sheikh Ismail and uh, Sheikh Osama. Um, later when we speak, we'll talk about some of these things that everyone's recommending. But someone asked, how do you make sure your intention for seeking knowledge is to please Allah only and not as a riyah? I'd say it's a constant struggle and battle to constantly renew your intention. I had a, I had, uh, I'll say there's certain things that you have to do to implement, this is what I would say, there's certain things that you have to do to implement in order to keep yourself in check or in order to stay sincere. I had an issue when I was first studying, uh, so I used to always refer to Dr. Ahmad, I used to call him uh, on the internet, like whatever, I used to call him and you speak to him about this problem, I'll say, oh, sometimes I get thoughts of insincerity or I think about this, that. And he would just rip me to shreds. So you need someone to rip you to shreds. You need someone to put you in your place. You don't have to always have someone just telling you good things and hearing what you want. You have to have someone that's realistic with you and he puts you in your place always. So alhamdulillah, I have Dr. Ahmad. He's that guy for me. So he told me, why, would you, why do you have these thoughts or something? He's like, you're nothing. Who are you? Like He's like, remember where you're going to go. You're going to pass away and you're going to be in the grave. So I'd say is have pious friends that remind you of you being nothing because you're nothing and we're all nothing. And then the, and, uh, and to constantly do secret acts of worship that are only between you and Allah, and that will guarantee your sincerity. Of course, the person is always fighting his nafs, whether he's sincere or not. He's always having a constant conflict in himself with this battle of sincerity. If you're battling your sincerity, you're good. If you think you're sincere, you're not good. You, sh you should be battling your sincerity. You should be reminding yourself why you do things all the time. 
if you feel insincerity seep into your heart, you should try to renew your intention. I lived with a very pious individual my second time going back to Egypt. His name was Fahmi Shahana. He was from Tunis. He was a very tall brother. He was one of the most pious people I met in my entire life. All he did was read Quran all day. His tongue was always Quran. And he was praying Qiyam al every single night. And he was fasting all the time. And he was seeking knowledge every day. And I was new to this, but he's like, he was like a pious kid growing up. Every day I would leave the house in the morning to go to my Quran teacher. I would leave about 6 a.m. after Fajr. He would say, Sheikh Ismail, Jadid niyataka. He would always say, Jadid niya. He would, uh, he would constantly ask me to renew my intention as I walked out. So one day I got a little frustrated because we're American and we're spoiled and we have no etiquette. So, uh, uh, so I asked him, uh, I, I, I asked him, why do you keep saying Jadid niyataka? What does that mean? And he goes, what's your intention? Renew your intention every day that you're seeking knowledge for the sake of Allah and to, remo and to remove the ignorance from your own self. And in this way, Allah opens up on you. If you have a sincere intention and a sincere niyyah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he'll open up on you. If you're insincere, Allah, he'll close doors. The more sincere you are, and I speak from experience and I see this with my own eyes, the more sincere you are, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens up on you and he opens door. He grants you something called the fatah, an opening. So Allah We ask Allah to open up on us the opening of those who have deep understanding. So he used to always tell me this word. Every day I'm walking out of renew your intention. I said, why? He said, so you remind yourself why you're going to learn the Quran or why you're going to study Arabic. So you find your skill heavy on the day of judgment and you won't find it empty. Yeah, you renew your intention. I, I'm studying for the sake of Allah. I'm studying to, renew, to remove ignorance from myself. I'm not studying to show off. I'm not studying to put up a picture on Snapchat. I'm not studying so I can make money in the future doing some con artist scams. No, no, no. I'm studying for Allah's sake. I want Allah's pleasure. And the more you do that, and the more you're sincere in your intention, the more Allah opens up on you in everything. Not only in knowledge, in everything. He opens doors for you. That He doesn't open for other people. When I was studying in Egypt, I, I have many stories, but I just get flashbacks all the time of certain instances I had in my life in Egypt that no one saw. Because I never posted anything. No one saw this. It was between me and Allah. Like going to Quran class every single day after Salat al-Fajr for three years straight. I used to speak to my teacher. He was on the seventh floor of an apartment building. And I used to meet him at his measure at Fajr. His measure was three measures past the, my local measure. So I would have to wake up before the Adhan and walk in the cold and in the dark and in the scary dark in Egypt. And dogs going crazy at this time. Dogs going crazy chasing me. Like dogs always chasing me. And this happened for three years. And I would be scared for my life every single day. Can the sister with the kid please go downstairs, please? And this would happen every single day for three years. And I always, I always now that here I'm here in America and doors keep opening up. I just think back about that walk I used to make from my house to the measure, his measure and to his house. Because wallahi, every single day for those three years, I was scared for my life because there's dogs yelling and screaming. Every single day. And I was thinking to myself, does no one see me? No, Allah, he sees everything. Allah, he sees everything. And you're sincere, you'll find the fruit for your sincerity in this world and in the next. And inshallah, you don't find the fruit of your sincerity in this world, so you find it all in the next. And your scale is heavy, and you're happy with that sincerity that you brought. Just remind yourself of the reward of doing something for the sake of Allah. Remind yourself that you're going to pass away one day, and you're going to be in the dirt. And nothing is going to help you except for the good, sincere intention you had. Nothing is going to help you that day when you're in the dirt. You know, if you did something for other than the sake of Allah, it's not going to help you. Because the first three people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he ignites the fire of Jahannam with. The first three people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ignites the fire of Jahannam with. The first is the... The alim, the scholar that studied, and he read the Quran, and he's brought on Yom Al-Qiyamah, he goes, why did you study? He goes, I studied so I could, uh, so I could, uh, I studied and I memorized the Quran so I could read it for your sake. And Allah says, كَذَبْتَ 
He goes, you lie, you studied and you memorized Quran so you could be called a qari'. So you could be called someone who recites the Quran beautifully, go to Jahannam. And the second person is the mujahid fi sabilillah, the one who fought in the way of Allah. Because fighting in the way of Allah is the most courageous act in the world. You're losing your life for the sake of Allah. What a shame it is for someone to lose their life for nothing. And they lose their life because they were showing off. So Allah, he calls that person, he goes, why did you fight? He goes, I fought so I could be, uh, for your sake, oh Allah. Allah, he says, kadhabta. You fought so you could be called batal wa shuja'ah. You fought so you could be called courageous and brave. Go to Jahannam. Go to waste. And the third one is the one that had asnaf al-mali kullah. He had mad money. He had a lot of money. He had wealth. Allah says, where did you spend your wealth? He goes, I, sp I, I spent it for your sake, ya Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he will say, you lie. You spent it so you could be called uh, uh, generous, jawad and kareeman. You spent it so you could be looked at and pointed at and called generous and very giving. Go to Jahannam. And your number one most important thing in the world is your intention. Your intention not only for seeking knowledge, your intention for coming to the masjid, your intention for praying salah, your intention for anything you do should be sincere. When you pray salah, you don't have to take a picture and put it on Instagram and say, Alhamdulillah, I'm praying salah. You don't have to do that. Your salah counts without that. It's not a condition of the conditions of prayer to take a picture and put it on Snapchat and say, Alhamdulillah, I'm praying salah. This is a disease of the heart. For you to tell everyone everything you're doing, it removes the connection you have between you and Allah. When you have a true connection between you and Allah, you don't want a connection with people. You don't want people to know. It's the opposite. You want to hide everything. And when you hide everything, Allah, he, he lifts you in status and he raises you. The one that doesn't want to be seen, he gets seen anyway. He gets seen. It's not your intention to be seen. Your intention is to be sincere. You want to do everything to receive the pleasure of Allah. And when you do that, you find the greatest sweetness in the world because you have a connection with Allah. You have a connection with Allah. When you do something for the sake of people, you never get satisfied because people are never satisfied and you're always let down because you're trying to please someone and that person is never going to be pleased with them. When you don't care about pleasing people and you only please Allah, everyone is pleased with you. They're forced to be pleased with you because Allah is pleased with you. So going back to the intention, renew your intention constantly. Ask yourself why you do things and have a companion, a pious person to put you in your place and to always like get, check you. Yeah, so the, I think that's, that's another question. How can we identify and avoid sources of knowledge that may be mis misleading? So I think that's that's uh, important uh, with with having a murabbi or having oh, yeah. someone who's who's a mentor for that you. Could direct you. Right, right. So I uh, go on. Yeah, yeah go on. Uh, if I didn't have direction in Egypt, I would have wasted a lot of time. I still wasted time, but I would have wasted more time. Having direction, having a good mentor, someone that's done it before you, and not acting like a know-it-all is very important. And another side note is that the more knowledge you learn, the more knowledge someone has. The more he knows, he knows nothing, and the more humble he becomes. Knowledge should humble you, not increase you in arrogance. The person that always wants to answer a question, and he's quick to answer a question, and he thinks he knows everything, is the most ignorant of the ignorant of the ignorant. He's the most ignorant. I say this because I was like that. When I first started practicing, you go to the measure for two and a half days, and you think you know everything. You think you know everything. You know nothing. When the more you learn, the more you're shown that you know nothing. The most knowledgeable of the knowledgeable are the ones who are... the the, 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 the most holding to their tongues. They hold their tongue. They don't want to answer something wrong because they know they know nothing. The more you study, the more you see how vast every single science is. You know, we mentioned in the khutbah today, Imam Malik, the Imam of Dar al-Hijrah, he was asked a, a number of questions by this guy that came to visit him from Morocco. Dar al-Hijrah is Medina, Saudi Arabia. Morocco is uh, seven, eight countries to the left of Saudi Arabia. It's a far land. He came and he heard about this great scholar, Imam Malik, so he asked him these questions. So he answered all the questions he was able to answer. And then there was 12 questions he did not answer. He was not able to answer these 12. So the Moroccan guy says to him, so what am I supposed to go tell my people? Like, what do you mean you don't know? I came here from Morocco. He goes, go back to Morocco and tell your people Imam Malik doesn't know. 
Knowing your place is very important. There's many brothers I'm not in Egypt, many brothers I know in Egypt. They didn't benefit nothing because they, first of all, they didn't have a mentor and they thought they knew everything already. Because if you know everything already, you have nothing to learn. Two people, they never benefit in knowledge. The person who's shy and the person who's arrogant. And the arrogant person knows everything in the world already. He doesn't have to learn. And the shy person is shy, so he's not going to ask. Was that good? There's a question here. How can I be sincere with my intentions when I feel like I'm too deep in a depressed state where I don't care about anything? Dang. You got to get a good friend to uplift you. You got to get a good friend that's bashful and cheerful to uplift you all the time. And you have to stop being so negative. You're a Muslim. Be happy. Have hope. Islam is beautiful. Islam is amazing. Be happy that you're a Muslim. No matter what happens in the world, you have Islam. And Islam is the greatest gift in the world. It's light and it's guidance and it's beautiful and it's amazing. You know, uh, uh, be around good company that are uplifting and that remind you of Allah and Salah and good acts of worship. Because you won't be depressed if you have good acts of worship in your life. You'll be depressed if you're always to yourself and just wasting time on Netflix and just doing nothing. This is depressing. But being active with Allah, being active with the Quran, having something Islamic in your life removes all these feelings and you feel good. I would just say, honestly, from personal experience, I'd say have good friends. There's these brothers that come to my, the Majid, I'm the Imam at now, Majid Yunus at Prospect Park, and they're here today. May Allah bless them and keep them steadfast. Wallahi, I look up to them and I'm so happy every time I see them. Because they motivate each other for good. They come to the mosque and they come to Hisham and they come to Fajr and they're smiling. All the time they're happy because they're with each other. This is happiness, having a pious friend. Me and Muhammad have been friends for like, what, like 15 years now. Ever since we met each other in the masjid. In the, I met him in the masjid. I met him in the masjid. And we're in the masjid. And we're talking in front of you. I never thought I would talk in my life in front of people. I love to listen to the lectures. I never knew how to talk. I never want to talk. I never wanted to give a talk. I never wanted to give a talk. It's scary to talk. I used to puke for one whole year. I used to throw up in Florida. Every khutbah, I hated giving. I hated Jum'ah. I loved Jum'ah my whole life until I became an imam. I loved it. I loved going to the masjid and listening to the lecture. Now you've got to go talk in front of 400 people. It's very nerve-wracking. Now, I never wanted to talk. But like, the point is that measure is amazing. People of the measure they're amazing. Pious friends are the best friends in the world. They're uplifting to your spirit. The person that reminds you of Allah is uplifting to your heart and your soul. You need that. You need that in your life. You need pious friends. Where do you make pious friends? The measure. The measure. Yeah, I would add to that that this person, um, clearly they're, if they're, they have like this apathy where they don't feel like doing anything. You know, I would say on top of the advice that Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Ismail gave, Try to find out what it is that's making you depressed or what it is that's putting you down or bringing you down. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's simple things. Maybe you just need to change your environment. Maybe you need to change your job. Maybe you need to change uh, the friends that you're hanging out with. Maybe it's, it's the input that you're putting in. Maybe it's your feed. Maybe it, there's so many different things that can be causing your state of depression or feeling low. Uh, if you can figure that thing out and change it, try to change it. And... SubhanAllah, as soon as those things leave, th those things that are making you depressed, it's like life becomes joyful again. Life becomes um, enjoyable again. So try to, you know, try to see what it is exactly. If you need to speak to a therapist, speak to a therapist. Speak to someone who can kind of help you navigate that space. Speak to the sheikh. Um, and, and obviously those advices that, that uh, Sheikh Ismail shared. Because um, your lack of sincerity is coming from your, your apathy. And your apathy is coming from your state of despair because you're so de depressed. So the main thing is you want to get out of that state of depression. You want to get out of that state of sadness one way or another. He made a fire point. 10 out of 10. May Allah bless him and increase him. Allah made a fire point. He said, I didn't think of this even. He said, find out what's making you depressed and change it. Anything can be changed. Sometimes the depression, the source of the depression is a sin. So stop the sin. 
I can't stop this thing. You can stop anything you want. The same way you could do it, you can stop it. You know, it takes resolve. The human being is a strong individual. He could do whatever he wants. Uh, but I think sinning is the number one source of depression in the world. Sinning it inherits depression and it inherits, and it inherits bad feelings and it inherits laziness and it inherits everything bad. And doing good acts of worship and doing good and not sinning inherits goodness and good feelings and happiness. So, of course. Yeah. So, we're, we're keeping everyone hostage here. So, inshallah, we're going we're gonna to end it here. But uh, there's the one question, I think. Sister had a question. Yeah. So, uh, generally speaking, the, the waswasa is always going to, you have to look at the state that, that, the, that you're in after those thoughts. If, if it's bringing you down, it's bringing you to a negative state, then you have to understand that that's coming from shaitan, you know. Yeah, so like limiting thoughts, would you say like limiting beliefs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so one thing I would say is, I wanted to touch upon this, but Jazakallah Khair for, for bringing it up. Limiting beliefs, like a lot of us, we have these limiting beliefs that we can't seek knowledge, or we can't become knowledgeable, or we can't, um, whatever it may be, whatever, whatever the reason may be, whether it's, you know, oh, who am I to, to seek knowledge, or, you know, I have a past, or I have the, all these things. I'm too old. All, all of, I'm too old, yeah. yeah. All of these things are limiting beliefs, and those are, those are things that you want, always want to shun away. But at the same time, uh, you want to be realistic. You want to be realistic and see, like, what is it that I need to know and what can I do to, to, to achieve that goal? In terms of um, the thoughts, like, oh, I'm, I, I've done enough or, you know, it, it's, it's enough. I don't really need to go more. Um, I think the sky is always the limit. Any, any, of those, any of the times you get those thoughts, you should always say that that's coming from your nafs. Either the nafs is trying to make you lethargic and trying to become comfortable because the nafs always wants to be comfortable. The nafs is always going to want to push you towards things that make you comfortable in terms of, like, it doesn't like... When nafs is addictive. Huh? Yeah. What is it? When nafs is addictive. Yeah, so, so the nafs is like a tifl. There's a, there's a po line, of, line of poetry that the nafs is like, like the, the child. If you continue to give it milk, it will continue wanting to drink that milk. But then when you wean it off the breast milk, it's able to it's able to weed itself off. So, um, yeah, 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 right. So is it is it more so seeking knowledge or is it is it more so like ibadat in general? Yeah. Yeah. So so I, yeah so I would say like from two aspects. One is that 
you know your limits physiologically, right? So if if you're up studying, let's say you're up like 11 p.m., 12 p.m., 1 a.m., now you're going into studying, and you know that's affecting your health, it's affecting your next day, then that's clearly something that you need to kind of control on your own. You have to figure out where your limits are and how, how, much, how much you can push yourself. Um, that's on one side. But the zeal to continue and to act on that knowledge is a good zeal. But at the same time, you know, the Prophet he told us that this deen is something that is is not Yusuf, but uh, the this deen is is very it's matin and it's albim, and no one overdoes it except that yeah. that it, it takes over him. So you have to kind of it becomes too much basically, it becomes too much where they're unable to handle it. So everyone's everyone's going to be different. It's kind of difficult for me to give you like a, a, a exact answer, because you're going to have to figure out what is it that you can handle. How does it not affect your other responsibilities? Because let's say you're doing ibadah till like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and then you're, you're, you're falling back on responsibilities that you have maybe to your spouse or to your children or to your work or whatever it may be. That's when you know that this is probably not a good idea. So it's, it's going to depend like case by case, depending on where you're at and what it is, what actions it is, and what, it, what it's affecting. But I would always say push yourself to as much as you can, and then... When you feel like, actually, you know, uh, I'm too tired or this is starting to affect other parts of my life, that's when you want to maybe pull the reins back. Inshallah, yeah. we'll conclude here. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to bless us with beneficial knowledge and knowledge that changes the state of our heart and brings us closer to Him. We ask Allah Ta'ala right. to grant us uh, knowledge that will be a proof for us and not against us on the Day of Judgment. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make the Qur'an our most intimate companion in this world and the next and to bless us with guidance and istiqama and, 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 and sincerity and acceptance. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. نستغفرك ونتوب إليك العصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصلوا الحق وتواصلوا بالصبر جزاك الله خير في الكومنت جزاك الله خير حبيبي حبيبي